According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, where you may simultaneously turn to Matthew 15 and Mark 7. We will be doing a lot of bouncing back and forth between the two. In Matthew 15, the text is verses 21 through 28. And in Mark 7, the text is verses 24 through 30. All right, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, and Mark 7, 24 through 30. We got a good start on this uh, subject last week, and I want to build on that. So let's jump right out it, right after a word of prayer, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. Father, we uh, thank you for the protection that you offer. We pray for any of our church members that might be affected by all this rain that's coming down, any flooding circumstances or other situations. As always, Father, day by day, we uh, each one of us is in your hand, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the confidence that we can have as being a part of your sovereign grace, eternal plan of the ages. So, Father, we uh, do thank you for this day. We're also praying for traveling mercies as you bring Radley to us this morning. And we uh, look forward to introducing him to the assembly this evening. And just thank you again for the privilege and blessing that it is to uh, to have the work assignment placed before us, for training men for the ministry. And, uh, Father, it's a humbling task. And uh, we realize that we're not the ones getting it done. We're simply the tools in your hands. And we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you now for our study in your word, and we ask for your blessing upon it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The Short Journey to Phoenicia is episode 41 in the Galilean ministry, and we set the context for this last week where we realized that it was an episode that follows conflict. An episode that follows conflict. And it's, it is instructive, I think, for us to observe how the Lord responded to conflict, not only at the scene itself while the the hot war was going on the shooting war so to speak but then what does he do in the sessions following that what does he do in the days following when he does he relocate does he find a different area uh does he change his emphasis does he use it to teach his disciples and we find that really all of those are involved he takes some time to depart from the galilean region uh, it's usually thought of as a retreat or it's thought of as a as a uh, as a time away. But even though he's spending time away, it doesn't mean that he's uh, he's no longer ministering or he's somehow retired. I'll never forget that I took a flight to Seattle one time and, and I, I don't remember the occasion might have been my uncle's funeral. Or for some reason, I was flying alone, didn't have family with me, but we were, I was on a plane. I'm sitting next to an older gentleman and and uh, I just, you know, asked him, you know, what do you do? What, you know kind of an opening icebreaker when you talk to a man like that. You know, what line of work are you in? What kind of work do you do? And he told me he was a Catholic priest. It was the first thing he said was, I'm a Catholic priest. And then he, after a short pause, he looked at me and he said, but not this weekend. And I thought, hmm, there's an interesting statement. What, what do you got lined up for this weekend? You know, are you chasing women? Or are you, what are you doing? You know, if you're, how do you retire or take a, just set your career on hold like that, and, and what are you this weekend kind of thing. So anyway, we, we talked a little bit more beyond that, not 
really to explore a whole lot in terms of what he meant by that. But I, I, it's still a conversation that's probably going to haunt me for the rest of my days. I'm going to think back to that and wonder, what, what exactly was he talking about? Not, not this weekend. You know, people ask me, you know, what do you do? Well, I, I pastor a Bible church, you know, but not this weekend. You know, this, what does that mean? You know, I don't know. So uh, the Lord is in a retirement mode. That is, he's on a retreat. He is leaving the uh, the region there of Galilee. And specifically, his statement where he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew 15, 24. Um, I think that's a remarkable statement, not only in the context for what he was communicating to the disciples there, but also even before that in, in the sense of us trying to get a, a clue as to his mindset, as to what he was thinking and why he was in this region and what he was hoping to accomplish while he was in this region. Likewise, when we read in Mark 7 that uh, he, in verse 24, it says that he wanted no one to know of it. That this was clearly designed to be a uh, an anonymous uh, getaway. It was designed to be a time where uh, he would uh, have a season of, of anonymity where he could be with his twelve, with his disciples, and not be hounded by the demands of ministry. So we read that in Mark 7:24, uh, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, or the boundary of Tyre, the outskirts of Tyre. And uh, when he had entered a house, uh, it's usually thought that that would have been a Jewish house, but I think that's reading too much into it. It may very well have been a Gentile house. Uh, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. And that phrase, escape notice, is what we spent some time on last week as well. This was a withdrawal. The vocabulary that's used there of anakoreo does speak of a retreat, a withdrawal, a seeking of refuge. Uh, you know, somebody that's attempting to escape or, or exit a situation. It is used 14 times in the New Testament, but 10 of those 14 times are limited to the Gospel of Matthew. It's a, a favorite word of his, part of his personality and background and writing style. It was a word that he was rather fond of. And so the Holy Spirit made use of that when he utilized Matthew as his instrument to uh, to write the gospel. We really spent some time uh, working on that word way back in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, where at the conclusion of his... Um, it's not actually verse 2... It's, uh, but it's in that passage where he withdraws uh, because of the arrest. And if I can spot it here real quickly, I'll add that to you to your to your notes. But maybe not. I will double check that and have that for you next week. Anyway, it was a withdrawal. Secondly, he could not escape notice. And the attempt there to escape notice, this is an interesting term, lanthano. Interesting, where uh, you're trying to maintain a low profile. You're trying to stay under the radar. We would use that as, a, as an expression today. Um, in, in large respect, believers, many believers have a problem with this. We, as we're discussing it in the spiritual gift application, 1 Corinthians 14, there were some believers that did not like the fact that their gifting and their ministry was not front and center in the church on a Sunday morning. That their gifting and their ministry was actually outside the church. And, and maybe people weren't exactly aware of how much they were doing or what they were doing or all the exciting things they were doing when they were speaking in tongues. See, 
uh, because their gift was designed to be out there in the world and ministering and reaching people for Christ and, and, and giving the gospel to people that weren't speaking your language and maybe bringing them into the assembly and that. Well, they wanted more of the upfront you know, time and being observed for what they were doing. And so uh, they, they were trying to put their gift of tongues to work uh, uh, for the morning prayer, for the morning uh, Bible reading and, and other things in church on Sunday morning where it wasn't edifying anybody. And you wonder, well, why, did you, why do you insist on being front and center when you're not really edifying anybody? Well, that becomes the big clue right there, doesn't it? Well, the, the, the antithesis of that, though, is wanting to stay behind the scenes, wanting to stay low-key, not drawing attention to yourself. Uh, when you realize that he who sees in secret will repay you, you don't need to trumpet what you're doing. You, you can, in fact, not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. You don't have to... Put on the gloomy face and neglect your appearance. Let the whole world know that you're fasting where you just make yourself look as terrible as you can. So somebody comes along and says, well, you know, gee, uh, Claude, what, you know, what's uh, what's uh, you look horrible. You are, we need to take you to the doctor. And, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I'm just fasting for Jesus kind of thing. And people bring that attention to themselves for the wrong reasons. And so the idea of escaping notice, there's a lot I think we can glean out of that from a uh, a spiritual basis where we can make the application on that. I, this actually was my objective in boot camp. <laughs> my, my goal, I was, I was Mr. I didn't know the word Lanthano at the time, but I was Mr. Lanthano. That was my, I was dedicated to staying anonymous in boot camp, and I did the best I could. It helped that uh, my the the bunkmate I was assigned to there, he was six foot six, three hundred and twenty pounds. So uh, you could stand next to him or behind him or just anywhere around his gravitational orbit there, and, and no one would see you. He was so large. So he got a lot of attention. Drill sergeants were all over him, and I just kind of, the only place I couldn't escape notice was mail call because my mother and my sisters kept sending me letters and cards and cookies and all kinds of things. So that was I, my, my anonymity quest ended at mail call time. But fortunately, this is and this is the true story here, the... We had two, two drill sergeants assigned to every platoon, and so I had Drill Sergeant Wright and Drill Sergeant Thomas. Well, we were the last cycle for Drill Sergeant Wright. He'd been a drill sergeant for three years. He was kind of tired and winding down, and, and, but we were the first cycle for Drill Sergeant Thomas. So he was right out of drill sergeant school, and he was so full of fire and energy and everything, and so we caught all kinds of grief from him. I was, I was very well known to him um, because he's the one that did all the mail calls every day, and... and all of that. Well, Drill Sergeant Wright was a little bit more uh, relaxed and low-key, and he didn't really get in your face as much. He, he was happy to let the younger guy take care of all that. And, and this really, I, I loved this when six weeks into basic training, we're two weeks away from graduation, and I got in trouble. And so the Drill Sergeant calls me over, and I go running over there, and it's Drill Sergeant Wright. And uh, he's chewing me out, and I deserved it. He's chewing me out. And then he looks at me, and he says, what platoon are you in? And I looked at him, I said, second platoon drill sergeant. I said, you're a platoon drill sergeant. You know, and he goes, you're one of mine. And he starts chewing me out even more. You know, I mean, I was already going to do push-ups, but as soon as I was one of his, now I had to do even more. But then I thought as I was doing my push-ups, I thought, you know, he didn't know who I was. <laughs> I thought, my, my anonymous plan is working here. I'm staying kind of... Anyway, so it, it gave me a little happiness that I did the push-ups even more, thinking, this is great. He didn't know who I was. Well, here's Jesus trying to escape notice. 
and, uh, and it didn't work. It didn't work. Now, the Father knows that. The Father's not going to test us beyond that which we're able to bear. And if, if, uh, if we need time away, we need time off, he'll, uh, he'll provide for that. If we think we need it, but there's more work to be done, then he'll provide that too. Because uh, oftentimes we're ready to take a break, and the Father says, no, it's not break time yet. You've got more work to do. We did a little bit of geography work on Tyre and Sidon, the two coastal cities there of the Phoenicians. They were among the most ancient locations founded, established after the flood. In fact, Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan, Canaan being the youngest son of Ham. Uh, the Canaanites and all of their branches were uh, scheduled for extermination. The father determined that their idolatry was uh, going to bring about their destruction, and Israel was going to be his tool to bring that about. And all of the Canaanite tribes, from the, including the Sidonians, uh, but the Girgashites and the Jebusites and, the, and uh, all of the ites that come there for destruction are all Canaanites. And Israel failed, by and large, to exterminate uh, some of those tribes, particularly the Sidonians. They never did take the territories on the coast that were assigned to Zebulun and Naphtali and some of those regions. So uh, they continued on through the time of the conquest, through the period of the judges, through the period of the kingdom. In fact, even during the kingdom stage, the Sidonians, or Tyre, actually became good friends of King David. And Hiram becomes a believer, gets oriented to the Davidic covenant, becomes a blessing to the Jewish people. And I think as a result of that, the uh, Phoenician city-states spread around the Mediterranean and around the world. Uh, a secular historian will never give you that reason for why the Phoenicians were such accomplished uh, sailors and traders and why uh, Phoenicia and Carthage and, and uh, the other uh, Phoenician colonies were so prosperous. I think they were prosperous because they blessed David and they blessed Solomon. And uh, by virtue of their blessing of the types of Christ, by virtue of blessing the Davidic throne, the uh, Phoenician city-states were amazing uh, if, you, if you ever study them on a secular historical basis, even through the time of their, of their evil. You talk about Jezebel, she's coming from the daughter of Ethbaal, coming from some of the most horrible, horrible idolatry periods, but they're still reaping benefits six generations later after, uh, after Hiram was pleased to bless uh, David and Solomon. So I think that is an interesting study as well. Now, this woman under point three is described both as a Canaanite and a Greek of the Syrophoenician race. And we don't have any problem. Uh, we don't view that as a contradiction. We understand that both are actually true, where she can ha be of Canaanite descent and still politically be Greek of the Syrophoenician race. And that's not, uh, it's not a contradiction between the Matthew and the Mark records. Now, the meat of this starts to come in under point four, Five and six, despite point four, despite her Gentile background, she has a significant spiritual perspective, and that's why we ran out of time. She correctly identifies the divine provision for mercy. She has a perspective on mercy and a recognition of Elias mercy, or the verb Elieo mercy. Uh, a Gentile normally has no perspective on mercy. There is no pagan religion that has a concept for mercy. The pagan religions are all centered on making your gods happy. And you placate the gods with the proper sacrifice, with the proper devotion. If, uh, if, if the gods are angry, you have to make it up to the gods uh, to make them happy with even more sacrifices and so forth. It's all about satisfying the gods in a, in a pagan way. Nothing, we, we think about satisfaction, we think about propitiation, don't we? That the Father was satisfied. Well, that's 
satisfaction in the right sense, the pagan sense, satisfaction is all about, uh, you know, you scratch my back and, and uh, I'll scratch yours. And if we make the God happy, then the gods can uh, not be mad at us and, and do nice things for us. There's no pagan concept for mercy. Even when mercy might be expressed, if, uh, if, a, if a Gentile king chose to, uh, you know what the Gentile mercy would be? We'll take you as a slave in captivity instead of just killing you in, in, in the war. Is that really mercy? No. No, because the Gentile king is going to plunder you, use you for slave labor and your children and all the rest, and your position as a slave is worse than being killed right there on the spot. So that's not mercy. But this woman understands mercy. And this woman, in fact, implores for mercy and issues an imperative. Remember when we talked about the psalmist in Psalm 119 and he was, he was uh, confident to order God, to tell God what to do? And he was able to, to make that command based upon the promises of God that had been issued? On what basis does she have to order God, order the Lord to be merciful? She can claim promises that he will be merciful on whom he will be merciful. See, and that in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That, yes, he is primarily sent to the Jewish people, but the promises made to Abraham are more than just promises to the Jewish people. That, that the Gentiles have an expectation through the agency of this Messiah for him to apply mercy. So she's got a, a background for that. She also correctly identifies Jesus as Lord, as Kurios, and as Son of David. Now, she calls him Lord in the Greek, Kurios, but we've done the studies in the past where we're very certain that Kurios, Lord, is to be identified with Yahweh, Lord, from the Hebrew Old Testament. So she's not simply saying the Greek name of Kurios, the Greek name of Lord. She, undoubtedly, linking Kurios with Huios Dawid, She's linking Lord with son of David. She has more than just the Greek kurios in mind. She's addressed, she understands the covenant name of, of Jehovah, the covenant name of Yahweh. When she links Lord with son of David, we recognize that she has a handle on Yahweh from the Old Testament. She also correctly identifies her daughter's physical condition as being a consequence of demon possession. She doesn't, she doesn't just say, my daughter is sick. My daughter has a medical problem. My daughter has a disease and needs healing. She knows her daughter's involved in demonism. Not unusual for uh, the, the, the pagans of Tyre and Sidon. They had all kinds of demons they were involved with. Her daughter's involved in demonism. And as a result of the demonism, there are physical afflictions that, that then manifest themselves in the body. And uh, in all three references, from Matthew 15:22, where it says, Kakos damanizetai, she is wickedly demonized. Help my daughter, for she is wickedly demonized. When you start fooling around with the demonic powers, you start fooling around with these sorceries, whether it's the, the, the drug-induced sorceries of, of, of our culture and, or the actual uh, spiritism, the occult that's thriving, the second largest church of Satan in the United States is right here in Austin, Texas, second only to San Francisco. And they're really proud of themselves. They were third, ranked behind Seattle for a long time, but now they've grown. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, well, you get involved in, in these kind of forces, and it affects you. You become demonized. You become uh, uh, not just possessed, but you lose yourself in the activity. 
the expressions uh, in Mark are, are likewise as vivid. Uh, vivid. The, the pneuma akatharton, the unclean pneuma, the unclean spirit, and then simply the daimonion, the demon, in uh, Mark 7:26. So she knows it's not a physical problem. You know, most parents today don't have the perspective to realize that it's a spiritual battle behind anything else that's going on. All they're looking at is the earthly realm. They're looking at, at, at physical health. Or they're looking at uh, that, uh, you know, just put on a condom and, and we're taking care of the promiscuity problem. No, you're not. You're, you're completely ignoring the spiritual battle that's at work. All right, now. It would seem, with this attitude, with this, um, let me get back to Matthew here, it would seem, with this uh, perspective, that the Lord would be very, very eager to, uh, to provide. All right? And he'd be very eager to provide. After all, has he not done miracles prior to this for Gentiles? What Gentiles has he already Okay, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, he actually didn't do any miracle for her. He led her to Christ. He gave her a message. There was no miracle accomplished in John chapter 4. But what's that? The Roman centurion. Yeah, his name is not Cornelius. Yeah, Cornelius is the guy later in the book of Acts. But yeah, there was a Roman centurion who uh, said, you don't even have to come. Just give the word and by chain of command, your, your authority can heal my son and my servant there in Capernaum. That's right. So there was a Gentile. So why is he reluctant to do the miracle here? He did the miracle in Cana for that Gentile. What's the difference? All right. Well, we're going to see his words on it here. Let me get back to Matthew 15. I'm losing my place. And again, as he stays silent. We read in Matthew 15:22, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word, so he stays silent. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. We'll talk about the disciples here in a moment. But he answered and said, and here's the explanation, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's the statement. Now, it didn't stop him before with the Roman centurion. And it didn't stop him with legion on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. All right? Um, and so we want to ask ourselves, well, what's the difference here? And, and it's not simply limited to the territory. A lot of commentators make a big deal about the territory, saying, well, he's left, he's left uh, Galilee, and he's now in this region, this Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. Well, no, that's still a part of the Abrahamic land grant. Just like the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in, in Gadara or Gerasa, where he, where he cast the demon out of, out of Legion, uh, that's, that's within the land grant. It's between the Euphrates River and the Brook of Egypt, so that's in the Abrahamic land grant. Um, no, I, I'm thinking that the, the issue here is is in terms of sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the distinction between, let's use uh, the, the centurion in Cana and the uh, legion as the, the examples on the one hand, and now this woman on the other hand, is that this is coming in a context where he's trying to stay, where he's trying to stay secret. It's coming where he's not in a public ministry. In other words, Cana, he turned water to wine. In Cana, he had teaching. 
In Cana, they were, yes, the miracle was on behalf of a, of a Gentile, of a Roman, but he was healing a Roman servant. Do we know the, the, the racial background of that servant? No, we don't. And then the other servants involved there in Capernaum may very well have been Jewish. We don't know. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that, there were, it was a Gentile context because it wouldn't have been Jews herding you know, swine with the pigs, right? And yet, there's an opportunity there in, within the land grant of Israel, there was a Jewish witness on that. On that uh, uh, there was a significant Jewish population there in, uh, in the Decapolis region. We'll talk about the Decapolis region here coming up. Now, I think that the reluctance was when he says here, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, given that he was in a retreat mode, given that he had just had that conflict with the Pharisees about the uh, traditions, about the cleansing, and they want to know how come you're not going through the ritual purification, and he just nailed them, why are you breaking the law of Moses with your Korban practices, that he is now... Um, off-duty, shall we call it? Okay. He doesn't have any teaching engagements. He doesn't have uh, the... Remember, the miracle is not supposed to be for the miracle's sake. He doesn't just show up and do a bunch of miracles to, to show off and say, here I am. Look what I can do. The miracles were attesting signs to give the credentials for the message that he was delivering. Well, here he's not delivering any messages. See? And that's the difference. Legion, there was a message to be delivered. Here, there's no message being delivered. So, uh, he's reluctant. Now, he will do the miracle, but we'll see that reluctance. Let's look at it now. He's reluctant to act. He'll reluctant to, he's reluctant to act. And we spell it out under subpoints A and B. Now, some people think the disciples wanted her to go away without the miracle. Just go away, you're bothering me. Right? I believe, and, and a lot of translators believe, that when they said send her away, what they meant was answer her request and send her away. Send her away happy, right? Don't send her away disappointed, but provide, do the miracle, and, and let her go. So I give that under point A. The disciples' request for Jesus to send her away is apparently intended for him to send her away with her, with her request granted. Need some more coffee this morning. Losing my, my R's. The disciples' request for Jesus to send her away is apparently intended for him to send her away with her request, request granted. So they're not dismissing her. They're not just saying, you know, get rid of her. We're not going to provide for her. They can't figure out why he's delaying. Because it really is different from his usual pattern. The, uh, he's silent towards her. Notice he explains to the disciples. And, and uh, I've not read a commentary that picked up on this. But in verse 23, he did not answer her a word. But then the disciples speak, and he answered them. So he's not speaking to her. He's speaking to them. You see the order on that? So she says... Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her word. Then his disciples came and said, implored him, saying. I mean, it's almost identical from what the disciples are imploring him and she was imploring him. When she implored him, he did not answer. 
The disciples implore him, and he answers in verse 24. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now notice, they don't answer Jesus at that point, and she doesn't have an answer for Jesus at that point, because he wasn't speaking to her. He was speaking to them. So then she came in verse 25 and began to bow down before him. So when you look at the order of the verbs there, in particular, you see she came in verse 25. See, she's not present when the disciples came in verse 23. Do you see that? And I don't know if this took place over a couple of days or this took place over a couple of hours or or where the coming is maybe it's an indoor outdoor kind of thing jesus is in the house they're all outside and so disciples come meaning they come inside in other words they came i don't think she's there when they came they have their imploring he answers them right and so they go back out and then she came her arrival in verse 25 obviously there's multiple occasions that are being spelled out here in one overall narrative All right. So anyway, this is just simply paying attention to the verbs from what the woman's doing in verse 22, where she came out. I think she crossed into that border region as well. She came out of the tire region into the border region. And uh, from her position outdoors, he's not going to answer her. And so then indoors, the disciples come in. He answers them. But then she comes in verse 25. Don't know how she gets entrance into the house but she comes inside begins uh, begins to bow down before him saying lord help me now he answers her now he answers her and the only difference i can find is what happens in between when he stays silent and when he gives an answer the only thing that happened in between was he had an opportunity to teach his disciples all right he has an opportunity to teach his disciples so Miracles are supposed to attest the authority for teaching. Who's getting taught? The disciples. That's right. And before there was any opportunity for teaching, there wasn't going to be any miracle that was going to be done. All right. So Jesus is silent toward the woman, explains to the disciples that he's not prepared to perform a miracle in this location because his purpose is to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. All right. But now he's going to give her an answer. And his answer is still a negative answer. His answer is effectively telling her, no, she's a Gentile dog. But he uses a parable. He uses a parable. Now, when when he answered the disciples, did he give them a parable? He just told them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He gave him a statement. When he answers her, he gives a parable. So let's look at it. Uh, she began, uh, she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Remember, statements of goodness are, fu- are fundamental to all humanity. They go back to Genesis 2 and the creation of the earth. The Lord saw all that he had done, and behold, it was very good. Statements of goodness that apply not just to the covenant relationship with Israel. A Gentile can have a perspective on divine good. And there's uh, there's a lot to this statement that he makes. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord. She agrees with his statement. 
I gave this to you in her point six. The woman has not yet received a no from the Lord, so she continues her request. Until she gets the no, she's going to keep asking. Until she receives a no. See, her first request, he wouldn't answer her. So she keeps asking. And she asked the disciples. Remember, the disciples were his representatives. The disciples had the authority he gave them to cast out demons, to heal. And, and so she was asking him, she was asking them. And until she gets the no, she's going to keep asking. So the woman has not yet received a no. Up through verse 25, she still hasn't received a no. So she keeps coming, bows down before him, saying, Lord, help me. She's not yet received a no. See, the, when we receive our no, we've got to stop. We've got to stop. That's where Balaam went wrong. Balaam received a no. Balak said, hey, curse this people. Balaam said, well, let me ask. The Lord said, no, you can't curse them. Whom the Lord has blessed, you cannot curse. So Balaam comes back and tells Balak, sorry, Lord blessed them, we can't curse them. And Balak says, I'll double your fees. And Balaam says, well, let me go ask again, right? Let me go double check. That's where Balaam went wrong. He already received his no. The idea about, well, let me go ask again or let me double check. There's no, there's no wiggle room because the answer was no. Now, this woman does not receive a no. And even when the Lord gives her a parable, that parable is still not a no. It's a parable. And she understands the parable and is able to give an agreement statement, an amen message. She's able to say yes, but she's able to give the amen message where she agrees with what had been spoken. And when she adds supplementary and explanatory information. See, this is tying in real well with what we've been doing lately in First Corinthians with the amen message. All right, now whether you're looking at Matthew 15 or you're looking at Mark 7, in both accounts, the situation is the same. That um, he kept asking, he, she kept asking him to cast the demon. And um, he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. That's not an exact no, right? Doesn't say anything about the dogs. It just says the children get satisfied first. Uh, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So she agrees with the parable. And she's able to add to it with a divine viewpoint perspective. So whether you're looking at Matthew or Mark, the details are still the same. Subpoint A, Jesus moves from silence to parable. He moves from silence to parable. Because the silence itself is a test. You ever give up on prayers when you don't see the answer right away? We're not supposed to. We do. We, we, we get impatient. We're the microwave society, right? We want it done right now. Absolutely. We, we figure that by the time our prayer is done, we've said amen, it's gotten to heaven, now where's the answer? That's our instantaneous gratification approach. And we forget that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as, as a day. We get impatient. He's the one with the eternal perspective. 
So the silence itself becomes a test. You're praying over a matter. We're praying over our expansion options. We're praying over our building needs, trying to decide how uh, we, best we can make use of our 6,000 square feet, how best can we make use of our classroom space, and all of that when uh, the Lord just keeps adding to our work assignment. We've got, a, a, like I say, that young man's flying in this afternoon. We're adding one more seminary student to the, to the training ministry. So, uh, you know, what are we going to do? How do we, be, how do we utilize effectively the space that we have? And we keep praying, we keep asking. Until we get our no answer, we're going to keep asking. We're going to keep looking. And, uh, you know, it may be that the Lord's letting us look at some of these dumps like last Friday, you know. And so we can look back at that and laugh and say, man, I think we toured that place. When he provides for us exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. We'll say, why do we even consider that? You know, or this house across the fence. Why do we think about buying that place? What, so we could add 12 parking spaces? What were we, what were we, what were we thinking? See. So silence itself becomes the test. Are we going to keep praying? Are we going to keep praying? Are we going to let go? Remember when the angel was wrestling with Jacob and he said, let go. Jacob said, I'm not letting go. And he had to wrestle all night long. Let's keep that in mind. Then he moves to parable. Now, it's important to observe that his statement to her is not a rejection. When he gives this parable, he's not saying no. He's offering a message. There's truth in the parable. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right? That's a, that's a true statement. She's not asking for the bread. And she's not trying to take the place of the children. She's able to answer the parable. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. In other words, crumbs, the children aren't going to eat the crumbs anyway. The children are eating the bread. But even, it's not, it doesn't have to be, in other words, it doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. Feed the children the bread, like they're entitled to, and then the dogs get the crumbs. And the children aren't harmed by giving the dogs the crumbs because the children aren't going to eat the crumbs anyway. The children are eating the bread. See? The use of a parable, point B, and this is what so many people miss. Bugs me to death. The use of a parable. Why is he speaking to her in a parable anyway? Because she's a believer and she's got the ears to hear it. She understands it. See? The use of a parable, this is point B, the use of a parable is designed to ascertain what has been granted. This is his test of her. This is what tips him off to the fact that it has been granted. That he can do this miracle according to the Father's will. Remember, Jesus is not omniscient or using his omniscience in, the, in, in his earthly ministry. This woman's coming to him and as far as he knows, he's not supposed to do a miracle today. Because he has no speaking engagements lined up. He's got, uh, this is not part of his normal prophetic ministry. He's off duty. The use of a parable is designed to ascertain what has been granted. If you look back just a couple of chapters to Matthew 13, also there's a key phrase in Luke 8 I want to share with you here this morning. But just a few chapters back in Matthew 13... Notice this comes after he who has ears, let him hear. 
See, this Syrophoenician woman, she's got ears. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted. It's a key phrase. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. That's why when he speaks in parables, those to whom it has been granted will hear and will understand. In the Matthew 13 context, it was the disciples that would receive the kingdom of heaven parables. And the Pharisees, they would hear the words, but it was not granted to them the understanding, the doctrine of, of that chapter. Luke chapter 8 and verse 10, likewise, similar verbiage. Luke 8 and verse 10. The disciples began questioning him. Again, it's he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what the parables uh, meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. All right? That's the purpose for a parable. So when she's asking for this miracle and he gives her the parable... What does he think is going to happen? Well, if it's not been granted, then she is going to hear but not understand. She's going to see but not uh, but not see. And uh, you can imagine if she was an unbeliever or negative that she'd you know respond pretty poorly to that you know throw to the dogs kind of thing. Who do you think I am, right? But see, she doesn't. Like the woman at the well, who and her adulteries were exposed, and, and you know, if she was carnal or, or the least bit negative, imagine how she would have reacted. You know, when she said, "Oh, I don't have a husband." Well, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not yours. <laughs> if she was not positive to truth at that point, to gospel hearing, you imagine the fireworks or how upset she would have been. Who do you think you are, kind of thing? No. She responded positively. And the same thing here. She responds to the parable demonstrating that she not only hears, she understands. She has ears to hear. She's a Gentile believer coming to her Savior for provision. And so the Lord right away recognizes that, sees her faith. See, she answers him. And says, yes, Lord. She's in agreement. She gives the amen. When you say yes, you're delivering the amen message. Yes, Lord. And then she adds on to that. And you can use a but or an and or an and also. It's, it's not a contradictory but. It's not a no, you're wrong, but here's the truth. It's yes, you're right, but here's more information. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She utilizes a parable back to him. How much doctrine does that take? To continue the parable and to expand upon it. So since a parable is designed to ascertain what has been granted, the use of this parable allows the Lord to determine that it has indeed been granted. This miracle is approved on her behalf. This woman indeed sees and understands and embraces her estate as a dog. She knows she's a dog. 
Point C, the woman indeed sees and understands and embraces her estate as a dog. Yeah, we talk about that all the time here in the church age. I mean, who is not thankful that they live in the church age where Jew and Gentile are one body in Christ? Because if we weren't living in the church age, we're just Gentile dogs. All of us say, unless you got Jewish background. I don't know if anyone in this church has got Jewish background. Unless there's some that I don't know about. All right. Maybe the Bollinger's for that matter. I don't know. I told you about the French Bollinger that emailed me, right? That scared me to death. No, no, we're, we're German Bollingers. And he said, well, yeah, but the German Bollingers and the French Bollingers are from the same, the same group. They were originally, they were Polish Bollingers. That's scary, too. <laughs> but the French Bollinger told me that the, the French Bollingers are all Jewish. I thought, well, pff, I don't know. So far as that goes. But this woman knows that the term Kunarion is kind of fun. It is, um, and I'll give you the vocabulary on that there in a moment. Kunarion is, uh, is not the normal word for dog. Kuon is the word for dog. I'll give you that in a moment as well. But this is a, a diminutive form. The diminutive form, which means little dog. See, it's like in Spanish, you've got a, a perro is a dog and a perito. You've got a little dog, right? Or a burro and a burrito, or you got that little ito ending on all your Spanish words, and that that shrinks it down, makes it small. So this is the diminutive form. She's just the little dog, a tiny little dog. See, a house dog, a lap dog, uh, a little a, a pet, a children's uh, plaything. You know, this, this is not. Uh, you know, most dogs are wild, the jackals and the wolves and the the beasts of the of the field some of the larger work dogs on the farm the sheep dogs that are mentioned the the guard dogs you know um that, that were domesticated for that kind of purpose they were all unclean animals even the ones domesticated and utilized uh by the shepherds uh but this is is a diminutive form this is just a little house dog a little a little uh i call them the dust mops right some of you have them i don't want to insult you but they're the the the, the Dust mops with teeth, and they, they yip and they bark. They don't do real barks. They have the little the little yip-yip barks. And she says that's all she is. And she, she knows it. Doesn't mind it. She's happy about it because she's a, a, a Gentile dog saved by grace. And she has the privilege for her Savior to come to her town. And she recognizes that opportunity. All right, the uh, kunarion is a diminutive for kuon. If you ever want to do the study on that, kuon, K-U-O-N, number 2965. And likewise, when she's asking for crumbs, the word she uses for crumbs is also a diminutive. Because uh, psikion is a diminutive for six. I'm not going to do a crummy study for you this morning, the crumb study. The word for crumb is six, P-S-I-X. And beyond the fact that I'm having trouble speaking today, six would be a hard word to say anyway. It starts with a P-S right here. P-S-I-X, six, right? We don't have very many English words that start with P-S. 
And when we do, we make the P silent, like psychology and psychiatry and so forth. Um, the PS is a ps sound. Psix. Anyway, a psix is a crumb. A psychion is a diminutive form. It is a little crumb. It is a tiny crumb. If you think about it, any prayer request you and I have is a tiny little crumb, right? It's a tiny little crumb. We need $2 million for this church facility we're looking at. We're not asking for a lot. All we're asking for is $2 million, right? But if we, if, if we approach that in human terms and think about what we can afford or think about what we could borrow or think about what kind of loan we'd get approved for or what kind of uh, mortgage payment we could afford on a monthly basis, uh, we might get a little discouraged about where we're going to come up with $2 million. See, all we're asking for are crumbs. What kind of cheapskate do we think we have for a father anyway? You know, is it like our father can't afford it? You know, particularly when we know and when we see the, the billions and billions of dollars that, that the unbeliever's father pours out. They build all these glorious tabernacles and temples and all kinds of other things. You know, the adversary rewards his own. Why do we think our father's such a cheapskate? See, and we're not going into the name it and claim it mode of prosperity theology and, and expect that, that, uh, the Father has to provide it. But we know that the Father has to have a plan or he wouldn't keep bringing us all these people. So whatever his plan is, we're, we're just looking to see what it might be and we want to stay obedient to it. All right. Her perspective here is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And the, um, the recognition of that, to know your place. This is why we teach... Uh, the, the overview study on bullology. This is why we teach the, uh, in memory, we've taught bullology and basics, the alpha to omega framework of God's plan. Recognize where we are. Know where you are in the church age. Know where you are as a believer in the body of Christ. Know where you are in your spiritual gift, in your ministry, in your effect. Know where you are in your place. It's a huge blessing. It's a massive blessing. And it simplifies a whole lot of other things. Because you can say, well, I don't know Whatever else is going to happen, but I know this is the assignment he's given me, so today this is what I'm going to do. Can't tell you enough how uh, what a delight that is. And that's like this young man coming down today. He doesn't know whatever else is going to happen, but he knows two things. He knows he's got the gift of pastor-teacher, and he knows that, that he can get training right here. Beyond that, he doesn't have a clue. <laughs> so he packed some bags, got on a plane, and he's on his way. What's going to happen next? He doesn't know. I don't know. None of us does. That's wonderful. Lord does. He's got the plan. All right. The last point on this, point D. The woman's faith and understanding of, parable, of the parable tells the Lord that it shall be done according to her will, which is consistent with the Father's will. The woman's faith and understanding of the parable tells the Lord that it shall be done. He tells her that. He says, it shall be done as you wish. Right? It's not just a line from Princess Bride. As you wish. comes from Scripture. The woman's faith and understanding of the parable tells the Lord that it shall be done. 
See, I don't believe he knew that until her answer. Her answer opened his eyes to what his assignment was this day. The woman's faith and understanding of the parable tells the Lord that it shall be done according to her will, which is consistent with the Father's will. Matthew fifteen twenty eight. See, the only time you have to say, not my will, but thine be done, is when your will is different. If your will is the same, then it is my will and thy will be done. Because you've molded my attitude to be in conformity with your, with your will. That's how that works. Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Remember, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. She would have no faith whatsoever if she was an unbeliever. Your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Remember what it shall be done is all about. That's amen. Let it be so. Let it be. Let it happen. Make it happen. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Where was her daughter? Wherever. Back home, back in Tyre or wherever this woman came from. All right. So it's, it is interesting. You, I have a question for you to chew on. You've got one week to think about it. All right. Did Jesus do a miracle here? Or was this a prayer request to God the Father through, through Jesus Christ? I mean, think about our prayer requests. To the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power and filling of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say he was going to do it. He didn't say that he did do it. He said, it shall be done. It shall be done as you wish. Did the Father do it? Was this an answer to prayer the Father accomplished? The woman was going to the Father in the name of the Son. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Right? John 14. So I, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm not going to answer. You have to chew on this for a week. And then next Wednesday... We'll see what your thinking is on it. And I'll tell you what my thinking is on it. And uh, we'll have some fun with that. All right. Any questions before I dismiss in prayer? We're about four minutes early, but we're at the end of the episode. All right. I'll take four minutes extra next week. Father, thank you for this day and the truth of your word. We thank you and praise you. Thank you for this woman. What an example of faith. And I pray that we would uh, learn to imitate that example, Father, that we would not be so quick to give up on our prayers when we think the answer's not coming. There is an answer on the way. It might be yes, it might be no. But until we get the answer, Father, we, uh, it's our privilege to keep, to keep praying, uh, to give you no rest. And that's, uh, that's our privilege and blessing as warriors on the wall. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.